Welcome to Healthcare 360. I'm your host, Scott Burgess. Join me in welcoming my guests as we discuss the ins and outs of the healthcare landscape and examine what is really happening inside of big healthcare. Okay, folks, we have another two-part episode of Healthcare 360. Today, we'll deep dive into something that every single one of us is not exempt from. Those innate qualities that help us to be successful may lead to the only disease that tells you you don't have a disease. My buddy and someone I look to for sound advice, Mr. Vinny Resnick, CEO of Nexus Billing Solutions, is here today to tell us his story of mind-altering drug addiction, his roller coaster ride to recovery, and later in part two, how he turned this life experience into a multi-state, 50-employee grassroots company. As usual, I truly learned so much from Vinny, definitely a mindset shift that I hope you share with others. Thank you for joining us and glad you can be here only on Healthcare 360. So dude, how are you? Good, man. Excellent, actually. You doing good? Yeah. Everything's rocking with the business. Since the last time I saw you was six months ago? Yeah, Seven months ago, roughly? Yeah, about that. Right? So yeah. what's the difference in between six, seven months ago? Tell me something I don't know. Well, it's, uh, I would say size of our team. So we've consistently uh, expanded the team. Mm-hmm. So I know you know of the expansion into the, the Philadelphia market. I do. Which has been pretty exciting for us. Um, but things uh, th- that you don't know, uh, I guess, would be also some substantial uh, progress we've made with uh, development of our web portal, mm-hmm. which is really a software application to increase uh, efficiency in what we do. So that that's pretty exciting as well. Let me jump into this yeah. for the podcast. Uh, I'm Scott Burgess. I'm your host. This is another episode of Healthcare 360. And I know I say this a lot. We have you know special guests, but I don't have a special guest today. I have a personal friend here today. I have a Masonic brethren with me as well. We're both uh, Freemasons. And it's just, I'm, I'm just happy to see him. And it's always, I gave you some advice. You then came back and gave me some other advice <laughs> when, when things were changing in our life. So very much appreciated. And you know, I love you. So yeah. thank you for Likewise. taking the time to make this happen. Absolutely. Um, Thanks for having me. When we put this together, I was sitting across from Michelle and I said, hey, so let's put together a guest list of who do you think would be impactful? You were one of the top five people that came up. I was like, you know Vinny's story? I said, we need to get him over here. We need to get his ass in here and, and talk about what he's done, what he's doing, where he's going. Your story, man, you know I love you for it. Uh, we're going to get into that a little bit. Yeah. We're going to talk about your business. We're going to talk about grassroots level, how you built it up to from really a halfway house to what, 40 plus people now? Yeah, almost 50. 50. That's, yeah. You're employing 50 people, man. <laughs> right. 50 people. Yeah. You're changing 50 people's lives. Yeah, it's amazing. It's actually uh, a humbling thought <laughs> a lot of the time to think that it started from literally from nothing, like you said, grassroots and mm-hmm. being able to uh, be able to provide uh, gainful employment for not only 50 employees, but to, to solidify um, you know, the stability of their families is a, is a nice feeling. Yeah, yeah. So it's good. Three children. For those who are listening and watching. That's right. Um, beautiful wife. Yeah. Been with you the entire time. Married up like most good salesmen do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> ABC men always That's be right. closing. That's right. That's great. So let's go into your story a little bit. Again, if we're going too far, just stop us where we are. But grew up in Philly. That's right. You're roughneck at heart. Uh, you, you've seen the good, the bad. Yeah, they're really, they're really ugly. Seen a lot of different uh, looks of life. Yeah, if that's what you'd like to call it. Colorful, yeah, colorful portions of life for sure. Yeah, 
But you, you, at one point in your life, you were pretty down. Yeah. Right. You, you, you didn't have so much good luck. You had some tough things going at you. Yeah. But on top of all that shit, you came out of it like I've never seen or heard anyone come out of it before yeah. on a personal level. Appreciate that. Thank you. And that that's what I want people to know because this part of the episode is going to talk about uh, rehabilitation, uh, mental health. You've been really – you just jumped right into that and you, and you learned a lot of it. And a lot of it comes from your personal experience. Yeah. You were an abuser. Yeah. Um, you abused – and I don't know. So correct me where I'm wrong. I believe alcohol. Yes. And, and drugs yep. to the point where you're making your own concoctions at the same time. Sure. And from there, yeah. Let me, if you are, could let jump me, in. Yeah, let me dive in for you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know all that, that so, stretch there. Um, thank you first for having me on the show. I think it's a, a great privilege and an honor to sit across from a friend and to be able to to tell the world, for that matter, the, the story because it, it's a great story. But I think it's one that would resonate with a lot of uh, a lot of people, not only in the recovery community but outside. I think that the uh, behavioral health behavioral health industry uh, has uh, reached and attained new heights in terms of the ability to uh, reach out in a way that's never been seen, at least not, you know, from a culturally accepted uh, position and, mm -hmm. you know, the stigma that's come along with that. I think a lot of people for a long time were afraid to tell their story. And I think the other side from a, a recovering uh, addict or recovering individual's perspective is, you know, when you see the outside world that didn't struggle or have those challenges in life, uh, a lot of times it's looked at like, well, good for you. You're doing what you should have always been doing. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I want to so, go back there too yeah. on a couple of those different points. Not right now, but we will. Okay. But you mentioned where you were, but I want to talk about how you got out of it. Mm -hmm. There's a couple books that I'm reading. One of them I'm absolutely in love with. It's Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. Uh, and this guy is really termed like one of the craziest motherfuckers in the world right. for the most part. He is, and, and I've seen his podcast, I've seen his video cast, and he really has just, he's developed such a, like a mental callus. I know you have some of that. Mm. We've spoken about your business your personal plans, uh, where you want to go, how you want to do it. I want to go back there. So don't yeah. let me forget. Yeah, All right. I won't. So, so uh, you know, I'll jump in just to give a little bit of a history and some insight into the background and some of the things that kind of led to here. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's a long road to travel backwards, but let's start. <laughs> uh, you know, and fortunately to be in that situation where, you know, I, I'm far removed at this point, I guess, as far as I've ever been and as close as I'll ever be is, sure. the, is the way that we like to say it, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, grew up uh, pretty humble beginnings, uh, you know, broken home, father and mother split young, part of my story. And I think that that's uh, a lot of people and, you know, and, and there's a lot of uh, America in general that can relate to that part of the story. Yeah, for sure. My mother struggled a good bit. Uh, she was, uh, you know, it, in Philadelphia, just outside of the city where we grew up and, you know, working her whole life, worked in, in and around healthcare, uh, respiratory pulmonary therapist to, to sleep studies and all types of things that she's done and really worked really hard to provide her three sons, which are myself and two brothers that I have, uh, to provide them with what she could. You know, that said, that meant a lot of time away uh, for my mother, which left, you know, three brothers close in age all year apart. A lot of times to figure things out for ourselves. I bet there was a couple fights going on there, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, we learned how to throw hands at a young age, and I, not yeah. something I'm proud of. But, uh, you know, it's, it's the, I've been there. the edge you talk about and, and the things of, uh, of being exposed to different components of life. And so, you know, when I look back and I think about times where you would see TV shows or sitcoms and people would sit down for a meal, 
things like that were just foreign, right? I just didn't think that those things actually happened. Yeah. And, you know, to jump ahead. <laughs> you thought it was a TV show. I thought, you know, look, this isn't real life. People don't actually do those sorts of things. And, you know, jump forward some years when I, when I met my, you know, now wife, uh, being introduced to her family and they would have holidays and dinners together. And there, there was a, a level of normalcy, if you will. Yeah. Um, whatever that is, mm-hmm. uh, that, that, you know, I started to see things, uh, somewhat differently, but going back to upbringing and childhood, you know, so raised uh, pretty tough, started working real young. I always had an idea. Uh, I was 11 years old, first job. Wow. So my first job was at a pet groomer that was literally <clears throat> at the top of the street. Under the table, of course. Under the table, $3 yeah. an hour. Okay. Uh, you know, you'd have to go in and clean out the kennels and that sort of thing. Uh, nothing glamorous about that, uh, employment, but you know, I learned, uh, young that if I wanted certain things, you know, that, you had to earn your keep. that I had to earn it. Yeah, and, yeah. and some of the privileges, I guess, that, that uh, most young kids would have, uh, you know, we just didn't, right? So, like, if I wanted the, 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 the popular sneakers or if I wanted something that, that I wanted to wear for school, you know, they're, they're, that meant that, you know, I'd have to work uh, the three or four hours at a clip to save my $12 at a shot to, to maybe get up to my $80 wow. for a pair of sneakers. Right. So, I learned that, that value proposition at a young age and um, – you know, so I guess over time, uh, working and going through, uh, you know, school, middle school, grade school, those sort of things. Not that the area was so tough, but I think that, uh, or, or where I lived was so tough. But I think just in general, uh, those from the Northeast will will understand that the Northeast is a little bit of a hardened region, particular parts, right? Yep. There's going to be nice areas. I'm from Boston, so I know exactly what you mean. Right. So you know? in that particular town, very blue blue collar town, mm-hmm. and I think the mindset is there different than than one that I have today. And so I wanted like to speak to that. Were you a good student? To a point, right? So I think that. Um, Ambition always uh, w- was a part of my student mindset, if you will. Yeah. However, I think that the uh, the correlation between the necessary actions that had to happen to become that uh, success were, were left out. So somewhere in translation from being a good student, could I absorb information well? Yes. Could I retain information well? Yes. Could I then articulate that information? Yes. The challenges that I had were understanding and, and and realizing the value between the time and the input that actually had to go in to obtain to attain certain goals that needed to be met. Mm-hmm. So as far as scholastics and grades, I think up until you know probably high school is where I really started to uh, I guess mingle with a bad crowd, right? So okay. I I know that it could what be part of high school. First year or second year? Uh, sophomore year. Sophomore so really year. 10th grade is where things started to take a turn. Now, I can tell you now looking back, being a father, having a young daughter, my, my oldest daughter is, is 12. Um, I remember the first time that I had tried any sort of drugs, I was 13 years old. And I remember there were some kids in the neighborhood that were smoking pot, things like that. And I figured, you know what? Hey, how big could this be? And there was um, – so let, let me stop you for a second. Yeah. Why did you – why did your mental psyche want to do it? What what was the attractiveness, if you remember that far? It's hard to put a finger on it. It's, it's hard to put a finger on what the attraction was there. Okay. I think that for some, uh, you know, in hindsight and retro. Did you want to be cool or something like that? Yeah, maybe, maybe some part of it was, you know, some of the kids that I, that I deemed to be cool or some of the kids that, you know, were getting into trouble fit into the popular crowd. Right. I never felt like I had a problem making friends. Uh, that was never really – a thing for me. I always felt like I kind of fit in where I went. I, I think yeah. it took us four minutes to become friends when we first <laughs> met at church. <laughs> sure. I, I think I've always had that going for me, but I think that there was something missing. And, and 
you know, in, in retrospect, looking back, uh, you know, on doing some work on myself and and really doing some soul searching through a recovery process, you know, I've uncovered the fact that there was some emptiness inside. So there were things missing, whether that was from the broken home and, and really not having that stability at home and looking for those things from outside sources. You know, whatever the case was, I was looking for something. And and I think that that was an avenue or a way to, to get outside of myself that at a young age wasn't um, – looking in perspective didn't look so dangerous sure. right yeah. did it have that element of danger and that feeling of oh man you know i could really get in trouble for this yeah and i think that that brought some of the excitement i never anticipated from those points because i think at an earlier age even than that um i can remember there was a picture of when we used to go to the boardwalk in ocean city new jersey they have those old time pictures yeah yeah and you yeah. know as kids i remember they would dress you all up and it would look like it was you know these old time photos it's and one of the pictures i had a cigarette in my mouth Oh, really? And I remember keeping the cigarette when I was a kid and then smoking it under the boardwalk. And I've seen that picture since as an adult and I you know, look at it almost in disbelief because I remember that moment and think, wow, as a young a kid that young, I was smoking cigarettes. So there was already some – Essentially the age of your daughter right now. Right. Maybe younger. Really? So, you know, so some scary thoughts as a parent now. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I say all that because there, there was – there was maybe some predisposition that I wanted to be cool or bad in some respects. And, um, you know, so that led to, to some of those later, I guess, patterns of behavior. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, as that progressed uh, later into, to, you know, high school years, uh, those trends continued and got worse. I, I think – When did it start to escalate? Really the sophomore year is, is where I can recall it really – taking a downward turn. I remember sophomore year, I lost interest in, in school. I felt like, uh, you know, what's the point? So I, I know that teenagers go through sure, what yeah. they go through. But I think that, you know, I really disconnected <clears throat> from the idea that somehow education would equate to success. And I started to gravitate more towards this idea of somehow fast money or these things uh, that I saw some of the older guys around in the neighborhood were able to get came a lot easier. So I, I remember sophomore year, I, I think it, I had a truancy of like almost 90 days or something. Wow. And so the way I did that is there was a co-op program in the school. Sophomore year is the first year you're eligible. And so I just from day one decided, well, I'm going to leave at lunchtime like the rest of the kids do. And if I start day one, no one's going to be the wiser. What I failed Was to, that true? Uh, well, it was until a point. So <laughs> the, the, the pot smoking didn't stop. And I remember, you know, I would smoke pot before school a lot of days because I just – that's kind of what I did. And <laughs> I remember coming into school and I was a little out of it. You know, it's early in the morning and, you know, we would smoke a pot on the way to school. And, uh, you know, I walk in and I see a gentleman, Mr. Schuler, and he's walking down the hall and he says, hey, how's, uh, how's co-op going? And I, I just turned real quick and I said, I'm not on co-op. And no sooner than I said it <laughs> – <laughs> I the, realized the cat's out of the bag. The cat's out of the bag. This is not <laughs> going to be good. So wow. he said, "Well, if you're not on co-op, why have you been leaving every day?" And that so that was start of some trouble patterns, right? Because it, in in that area, um, truancy is actually can be criminal after so many days, right? Right. So I so remember must have told your mother. If, right? I had to. So at that time, I was 17, so still a minor. Or 16 or 17, I was still a minor. Yeah. So she had to actually come to court because I was being charged with truancy. So this was the start of any real trouble, right? So any any run-ins with any sort of trouble. And so, so let me back up for a mm -hmm. second here. So you started off with marijuana, okay? 
Was there anything else that you said it at? Were you smoking? Were you drinking alcohol? Like, what else were you adding back in there? Yeah, so let, <clears throat> excuse me, let me clarify too. So, the areas that I grew up, um, the, these sorts of things for, uh, I think, are generational problems, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, there, there's a certain mindset that I'm now cognizant of, um, particularly from, you know, a bird's eye view and being outside of maybe the confines or, or restraints of, of being stuck in a uh, sort of unilateral vision here, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the generations of people that I would know, a lot, a lot of these things were, were sort of common fare, right? So that, you know, parents did, parents smoked pot or parents drank and these things were just very normal uh, occurrences. So as a young kid, it was, you were bad for doing it young, mm-hmm. but it wasn't necessarily such a bad thing. And not that my mother did any of that stuff, but a lot of people in the area or their, or their parents, you know, there was a known thing that they drank or smoked pot. And so it wasn't so uh, frowned upon. Right. And, um, you know, I think that looking for the word, uh, I think that commonality, if you will, mm-hmm. um, made some of it feel a little more okay than, you know, looking back at, than, than it was. And so, you know, that, that trouble begins. I start to get in, you know, in, in trouble there. And, you know, fast forward a little while, that precipitated. So you talked about other drug use. When I was, um, when I was uh, 17 years old, I was a senior in high school at this point. So I had to be younger in my sophomore year, probably 15 or 16 when okay. the truancy happened. Yep. Uh, I, was, I was a young uh, senior. I do remember that. And my senior year, um, I was in a bad car accident. So I uh, broke my back in this accident. I fractured my L4 and L5, which are the last two vertebrae in my back. And that for me was what set off really the next phase or level of addiction. That's and, so aggravating because yeah. not many times you hear those stories that, especially now in the political environment that we're in at the moment with opioid use and you know high-level addiction from – Starting from prescriptions yep. that then move outside. So I will say, in, in defense to the healthcare industry, even though at that time it was probably less known uh, or um, less frowned upon to just easily prescribe medication, I had a pretty good doctor in the city of Philadelphia that uh, was cognizant of that already. Mm-hmm. Um, I went through to an orthopedic, I believe his name was Dr. Drummond. And uh, what he had uh, suggested was that I, I went with an alternative to even potentially surgery, which was a uh, Boston orthopedic brace. Okay. So essentially what that was, a hard shell. Was, yeah. was, Up to your neck for the yeah, most part. For, or at least your collarbone. From roughly your collarbone down to your tailbone. It's a full wrap hard shell that's fit to you with a couple straps that come across. So I wore that for about seven or eight months. And and in between, there was definitely some pain medication. That was the introduction for sure. Yep. Um, I think for me, the the challenge was I had a hard time then, uh, you know, stopping that. Because here's what it was. When I took the medication, I felt great. And when I didn't, I didn't. So – you know, there there was a correlation made there that you know that, that I had pain. Did you have something going on in your head at the same way you were taking that stuff, or were it just so, you looking for pain relief? Yeah. So for for a non you know addict or you know non addict mindset, it's it's not like a you know a hard trigger that just you know you you let the the cat out of the bag and all of a sudden you know you go from you know Joe normal to to you're under a bridge with a needle out of your neck, right? So right. you know it's it's not that drastic. I think what happened though was uh, as a young man. Uh, who didn't know anything about drug addiction, didn't know anything about these things. Now, was I inclined to to smoke pot or do certain things? Sure, I had done those things at a much younger age. So it wasn't uh, as taboo, if you will. But I think for me, with with my experience, what I realized was that I felt that much better when I took, you know, opiate medication. It would 
take the pain away. Yeah. I mean, to the point where I remember there was points where I couldn't walk. I would take pain medication, and you know, I'd feel like I could run around the block. And you were humming. You were just going, right? You're ready to go. Right. So, you know, when you're given the all, you, you have a, a choice. Do you, do you want to live in pain or do you want to be pain-free? Mm-hmm. And so the dilemma begins. You know, so that is what started the introduction. Now, I know at some point the doctors uh, very candidly were like, listen, you know, we're, we're not going to continue to prescribe this medication. Opioids can be dangerous. You know, they, they, they look to alternative medications uh, like Neurontin and some, some nerve type solutions that would help long term. They weren't viable solutions. I mean, once you, you know, it, it, and so I think you were hooked at this point. Well, what if you take a pain uh, you know, t- uh, pain medication, it's a powerful narcotic, mm-hmm. right? So that powerful narcotic has a much more, uh, there's a much more tremendous impact for the result of feeling better than there is for maybe a medication that has to work maybe incrementally or doesn't take that complete edge off. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was hard to go from that pain-free feeling to then, you know, living in pain or trying to take a medication. That so was how not- bad was the pain off of medication if you had so you had the typical question from a doctor from zero to ten rate your pain yeah so i lied a lot so it's hard to say right like so in my mind it's hard to really construct and this is being honest now like i I remember there were points where it was always a 10 if i went to a doctor's office it had to be a 10 looking back i would say a lot of those things were were more livable than interpreted in in my head Mm -hmm. um but there were definitely points uh after the initial accident i mean you fracture your back it's not a small deal right i I think livable would be a good word um to describe what initially was going on um the challenge was once you go from livable to fine medicated you know you don't want to go back to livable or anything that even remotely feels like livable and so i think that was where the breakdown happened it was it was definitely a path of less resistance yep. in terms of feeling and having to go through that. How long did it last for? What, which part? The back issues, the brace, the medication, so the another, continuation of the medication. So another good question. So I think one of the precipitating factors for recovering addicts and, and let's say drug abusers at first mm-hmm. uh, who hopefully find recovery or some sort of process is that you milk the cow. I, you know, so how long did that go on for? As long, it, probably until I decided to get my life in order. Right, because it was always a reason for me to continue. Right, um, you know another strange element of um, you know that that part of uh, becoming addicted and physically dependent on a drug is that your body will manufacture pain. So the pain that's you know probably livable in a lot of other scenarios is you know seems excruciating in the moment. You know, and and wow. then you compound you compound that with the other factors that you know would would be symptoms of withdrawal and anxiety and things like that and. You know, the, the, the choice between just taking a pill to fix it or, you know, stopping medication or finding other avenues, it's just much easier to take medication. Mm-hmm. So, you know, fast forward, uh, you know, in, in that area, the opioid epidemic was really just starting. So, uh, you know, I've been in and around the, the recovery community for, you know, 11 years in recovery myself. The journey didn't start there. It was a few years before that. So I've been in and around the, com- the community even longer, probably closer to 14 years. So... You know, there there was a, a time there where I realized this isn't working, mm-hmm. right? And then and then what do you do? Right. And that's really where the challenge began began for me because I think. Um, so you fast forward it to what? How old are you now? So the first time I attempted to <clears throat> to get off the drug. So here's another notable point. So I remember at some point I, I so by this point I'm already uh, getting 
you know, prescription drugs from the street. So Oxycontin was a regular part of my life. And so those prescription drugs were readily available in the city of Philadelphia. You know, I think uh, probably at the height of my my using with opioid medication, it was probably, uh, you know, three 80 milligram Oxycontins a day, which is enough to kill a grown adult that doesn't take that medication you know, regularly. So I say that because wow. a tolerance is built and that's enough to, you know, literally kill someone, Yeah. but your tolerance is built. So again, I, I'm fortunate enough not to have taken drugs. Yeah. Okay. I agree. Uh, I've only had morphine when I had my ACL surgeries after football, but that was a short duration. It was yep. a nerve block and then it was Tylenol Advil, right? What does Oxycontin do to your body? All I know is nerve block pain medication that's localized and that's it. So if you if you've taken morphine, similar feeling, right? So it's a, it's gonna just take all the pain away. You know, there there's a certain feeling if you over medicate or take more than you should, where you you'll feel high, right? And mm-hmm. I think that's uh, the feeling that most um, you know drug abusers or people who become addicted you know go after. Mm-hmm. Now I'll say this, you know, so going back to education, while it wasn't a focus, I never considered myself to be a bad kid. I think that um, I had you know, the best upbringing I possibly could given this, this circumstance. And it's tough because you do really rifle through the thought of, you know, is this just some sort of moral dilemma? You know, I think a lot of times it's, it's a, it's a soft spot in healthcare because uh, particularly for behavioral health, uh, you know, the, the normal patterns in in any medical type service would be to triage the situation or to diagnose the situation, Mm -hmm. come up with a treatment plan execute the treatment plan, it gets better. And I think the uh, the challenging part with behavioral health is that there's so many differences in recovery and how that happens and, and what treatments are, uh, you know, are effective and how those things work. So at this point, though, at, at this end point that we just last touched upon, do you even recognize that you had a problem? So, yeah. So and thanks for bringing it back to track. So the uh, there was a point where when it got to that level where it was, you know, that heavy medication mm-hmm. daily and that type of use, uh, th- th- something inside of me just woke up and I said, you know, I, I really remember feeling like I was walking around like a zombie most days. Really? Yeah. And so, that you know, th- just nodding out and, you know, just not feeling like I had any quality of life. So I'd actually made a decision just really on willpower, like I'm not going to do this anymore. And so not knowing any of the effects of just stopping – you know, I became violently ill. Um, you know, I had I'd never really experienced any sort of anxiety previously, but I had just unimaginable anxiety, literally, you know, skin crawling and, you know, just feeling like you'd almost rather die than go through what you're going through. Yeah. And how old are you now? Uh, so this was, uh, I was probably about 20 at this point. Okay. So I was about about 20 years old. So I'm, I'm a few years removed. You're going through signs and symptoms of withdrawal at an age where you're supposed to be just beginning your life. Right. You should be, you know, and, and so I, I tried to keep some semblance of normalcy. Uh, you know, I went to college, uh, you know, I was paying to go to school. I was, I was attending class. I was trying to correct some of the uh, more wild ways, if you will, from being, you know, a young guy. And, and I woke up one day and said, I don't want to do it. So I'm going through all these effects and I'm feeling like this. And finally, I say, you know, I, I got to go to a doctor. Uh, at this point, I was throwing up so bad every day that I was literally throwing up stomach bile because I couldn't eat anything. It was terrible. And, uh, I said, you know, mom, I got, I got to get checked out. I don't know what's going on. Now, in my mind, being a young guy, I'm thinking, you know what? I took so many of these pills. I probably ate a hole in my stomach. 
that's why I can't eat. That's why I got all these feelings going on. And so she took me to a doctor that would do, uh, I believe it's called an endoscopy when they go down. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the doc, you know, gets the, the tube scopes my stomach and, you know, he says, he's like, look, your, your stomach's perfectly fine. I mean, everything looks perfect. And I said, all right. And he said, is, is there anything else, you know, you're not telling me? And so my mom was in the room and I hadn't really come clean about this. And maybe she had some idea that something was going on. But, you know, the, a lot of people were sympathetic, right? You broke your yeah. back. You almost get a pass. And, you know, so even though there were poor choices that were going on, it was still, you, you know, there there was there was a clear problem here to me. So I said, Ma, you know, can you step out for a second? I said, Doc, here, let me level with you. Yeah, I've been eating this level of medication for you know, X amount of time, however long it had been, and it's increased in terms of amount just based on, you know, a tolerance that I've built up to, to, to getting that feeling. And so I said, you know, Doc, listen, uh, I got to level with you. I've been taking this amount of medication. It's a daily thing. And he kind of like chuckled a little bit. And he said, well, do you have any at home? And I said, yeah, but, you know, I don't want to take it anymore. He said, listen, son, you're going through withdrawal. And he said, if you want to feel better, if you have, say, half of one of those pills at home, you know, it, go home and take it. You'll feel better. And then you need to contact someone and find out about, you know, a plan to, to, to help get off the medication. So wow. that was my introduction to any sort of withdrawal and any sort of understanding of what that was like. So when you went home and you took the half of the pill that they said, hey, you better do this or you're not going to feel any better. What did you go through emotionally? Because there has to be, well, I can take it a little bit more or maybe not. Maybe you had the willpower not to do it. So I think I was always a pretty strong-minded young kid. Mm -hmm. And so I think from, from my perspective, I really, you know, didn't want to take the medication. However, I'd been living in my own personal hell for probably three three days or so at that point. And right. so, you know, I did. I went home and I, I mean, literally for the sound effect here, like that felt better. Cold turkey. No, no, no. Felt oh, I'm better. sorry. For take, the pill. Yeah. For yeah. taking the medication. Right. Okay. And for the first time in my life, I realized in you know, real feeling of despair set in because you're like, you know, you're almost in your head like, really? Like mm. that, you know, that's what it is. And so now how do you dig out, right? And so I think it's important to note too that, um, you know, part of a, a, a um, an addict mentality is one of, uh, of just complete self-centeredness. So I almost had an inability to see things from others' perspectives because the world, not only did I, you know, believe that it, uh, you know, was, was centered around me, I actually thought that it revolved around me. So I think that, you know, a lot of these things that from a healthcare perspective or even from a family perspective are so baffling to the individuals who have struggled with that and then come out on the other side, it's almost like we, we just get it, right? Like it's right. just a – it's par for the course. So then it's back to the point that I made about like, you know, thinking – Oh, is it just some sort of moral dilemma? I always really wanted to be a good kid, even if I didn't do the best job at that. I mean, it wasn't the worst either. Mm -hmm. So I reached that point, and you know, so I'd uh, I called the number on the back of the health card, you know, and I told my mother, "Here's what's going on. You know, I need help. This is what I'm going to do." And, what was uh, her reaction? Probably disappointment, right? I mean, I don't know. I you know, it, how do you quantify that? You know, I'm sure yeah. she, you know, she wasn't. 
overly happy. I think maybe she was probably a little relieved that whatever. Did you soften that blow a little bit? Or did you really give it to her and well, give you, you her have the to full put, truth? Yeah, you have to put in <laughs> well, I'm sure I did, right? I'm sure I yeah. gave her half of what was going on. But it, you have to put in perspective what's going on here, right? I call my mother. I tell her I'm, not, I'm really not feeling well. Clearly, I'm having symptoms of something. Mm-hmm. I go to a doctor. He says, essentially, you're okay. Right. Well, what am I supposed to tell her, right? I mean, there's no <laughs> – at this point, there's nowhere left to go. The, re- so, the reason why I'm asking you all yeah. this, this – someone's going to listen to this podcast and they're going to – emotionally attach themselves to what you're telling them right now in your story. Yeah. Did you, didn't you, why didn't you, or what was that thought process? Because the reason why is I know if there's things that I'm scared about, I will literally walk away um, and not, not from that situation, but I'll walk away in my head and I'll come back and I'll like, just get it out. Yeah. And every time I've done it, I felt so much better. And I want people to make sure that if they're going through something, that there's hope out there. Yeah. There's a story that they can really just kind of um, attach themselves to and model it. Yeah. Because you are a model. Thank you. You, you really are. And and I know, <clears throat> excuse me, we're only in the beginning part of the story here. But by the time we're done, this person listening to this podcast is going to change your life. Right. And we both know that that's going to be the end result here. Yeah. So, And I appreciate yeah. that. And I think for the audience's sake, I think that Scott has a much better introspective look into my life. And I think for the sake of not only palatability, but also to not lose anybody, right? I, right. I, that I'm not going to dig into all the gritty details of what that looked like, but it, but it wasn't pretty, mm-hmm. right? There's a lot that comes along with that, but I don't want to disqualify myself from a certain audience, right? So I know the type of listeners that you have, and I know the people that are going to tune in. And what I want to say to that, and to speak to your point, is that no one is exempt, all right, let me just tell you that when I was in that world, I know for a fact that there were nurses, okay, that had addiction issues. You know, a lot of times that's how medications leave the hospital. Now, I know since the early 2000s or whatever time that was, there's been more parameters put in place mm-hmm. for locking down medications, particularly with the em- epidemic becoming an issue. But believe me when I tell you, I'm sure that, you know, 99% of the listeners know someone Okay, that has had it had or is still struggling with some sort of addiction issue. So, what about doctors? Same, absolutely. Yeah, no one's exempt. I mean, here's the idea: you can have all the knowledge in the world. So, I always considered myself a smart kid. So, when you say like, you know, hey, why don't you just don't, why didn't you just stop, Scott? I, I didn't have the answer for that. I still don't have the answer for that. Why didn't I just stop? You know why? Because I was addicted. Right. And it's almost mm. like this switch or this thing that exists. I know I told you it's not a switch to downhill. Right. But there's something that happens there. I don't know that it's physiological, if it's psychological. And I know that the healthcare industry has bounced back and forth on this a lot too. Is it a mental disorder? Is it a behavioral disorder? Is it a disease? Right. Because I think that that's one of the hardest things for someone to grasp the idea that it's somehow a disease, uh, addiction, when it, when it appears to be a choice. Mm-hmm. At some point, you lose the choice. Right, and it's no longer about a, a, a choice of if you want to do it anymore. It's you do this, or you feel like you're going to die. Literally, I don't know the answer, but we're going to bring someone on with you, and we're going to figure it out and go through it because that that's a that's an introspective topic point right there about yeah. why. Yeah. And I'm the firm believer, and this is what the podcast is supposed to do. And this is the answer for when everyone asks me, "Why are you doing the podcast? Why are you doing the podcast?" Had you known prior to, and you had more options to exhaust, you would have made a different choice. Potentially, yeah, you know, yeah. And, I, or, and and I would I would hope so. Yeah. Um, but I think that's the puzzling uh, component of of addiction, right? Like you, you, you'd 
I'd love to believe if I had more information uh, that I could have made better choices. I'd love to believe if I had a better upbringing, I would have made better choices. I'd love to believe if I wasn't exposed to certain things that I wouldn't have, you know, that I would have made better choices. I, I can't sit here in good solemn faith and tell you that that's the truth because what I believe today now being involved in a recovery process for some time is that 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 you have you struggle with this or you don't and I think that there's some indicators that that show what those patterns of behavior look like mm -hmm. I don't know what causes that I don't know what creates that I don't know you know what what makes someone an addict and what doesn't what I know is for me uh, you know, when I, when I put a minor mood altering substance in my body that I can't tell the difference between what's prescribed by a doctor and what I want to prescribe for myself. And so that's where the real challenge lies. So let's kind there, of, there was, yeah. a, there was a point though, and I don't want to skip over this. There was a point where you were mixing to get a little bit more of a high or pain reduction was something. I remember you telling me at one point that there was a mix going on and that do the flip there as well. Yeah, so I think um, so. Here You're would be chemist. yeah. Here, here would be the progression, um, you know. So and, and I, again, I don't want to dig too deep here, but the progression would be this: that let's just say there's a line in the sand, mm -hmm. and, and on the other side of the line is the water. And someone says, if you go into that water, you know, you're surely going to drown, right? And once you once you cross that line in the sand. You know, you're going to walk into your ankles, you know, and it's 110 degrees outside, and you say, oh, that cold water feels good on my feet. Right. Next thing you know, you're going to be up to your shins, you know, and you're just going to be wading around next thing you're waist deep. And by the time you know it, you're, you're trying to keep your head just from going underwater. And that's what I can explain to you. So what recovery really is, is drawing that line in the mm -hmm. sand and just saying, I'm not going into the water. Right. But once you cross that line, I don't think that there's really a fair metric to say, hey, I'm only going to go in this far. And that's the difference between an addict mentality or, that's a great or, analogy. or an addict mindset versus someone who doesn't suffer with that. Someone right. who doesn't suffer with that will just say, I'm not going in the water. If I go in there, I'm going to drown. Right. So that's the affliction, right? And that's where it's tough to – well, what are, the, what are the precipitating factors? What are the indicators for that? Now, in some instances, I know it's trauma. From some instances, I know it's you know, upbringing. I know there's things that can happen that, that help you know, contribute to those things. I don't have those uh, as easily identifiable factors in my history. Here's what I do know, and it's just what I want to get into to, to turning the you know the turning point of the story. I know at some point in my life I got tired, and you know it's cliche in recovery community, but sick and tired of being sick and tired. Mm -hmm. I think there was a uh, you know one of the single most factors for most uh, addicted people would be denial, right? So you know it's it's yeah. it's the only disease, if you will, that tells you you don't have a disease. So any other, you know, classifiable disease, you know, and we're talking behavioral health is really how it's coined now. But any, any other disease, it's you see the outward symptoms and people say, oh, he's sick. You know, I think with addicts because, one, because of what their behavior patterns are, and two, because outwardly it seems like a choice, that it just looks like what's wrong with him. Right. Let me tell you what the addict thinks. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Why can't I stop? Why can't I just? You know, and those sort of things run through your head over and over and over. At some point, hopefully, right? And and uh, you know, hopefully, there's there's a point where those things can um, either reach the you know the right intervention or or that that intervention sought. Um, that then you know, there's other things that can be put in place to help that recovering addict. For me, I had a few stops at treatment centers, right? So that I went to treatment center to really stabilize, to get healthy. So it worked? 
Yeah. Yeah. The problem was I didn't work. Right. So there were, there were instances where I went into treatment centers. I would get cleaned up from all the, the stuff that I was taking. I would feel better, you know, a month later, two weeks later, three, whatever it was, I'll just take one, you know, and I'd go on the other line, the other side of the line in the sand. And so, you know, See, but that, that's, that's what I want right there because right. at this point, I understand there is a physical component to this yep. that's making you at least feel like you need it. But where is your head? Where is your your psyche? Where is your mental on all this? Because that's where the true breakdown is. Because if there's true co- – and I could be speaking just completely like gibberish right now because no. I've never been there. But there's an aspect of the mental component of it and the behavioral health and the attitudes. And Because when you decided you wanted to get better, you snapped your fingers and you started doing it. Yeah, it's a choice. So for sure it's a choice to work towards recovery. Right, so I think that what happens in the the, the mental um, warfare, if you will, mm-hmm. is the positive reward that came along with the drug use. So a lot of times in an addict's brain, what happens is you'll minimize the consequences or the effects, despite the glaringly obvious situations. Now those bottoms are very different for a lot of addicts. When you say, "Could it be a doctor?" Absolutely. Could it be a pilot flying your plane? Absolutely. You know, we hear mm-hmm. these instances when they come out. But, you know, you have to look where there's smoke, there's fire. How many instances do you not hear about? You only hear about the guys that got caught. Yeah. So, you know, the reason I say that is because that reward system in your brain is like, you know, it's almost like the rabbit in the cage. You hit the little lever and he gets a pellet and he eats. It's similar for an addict that there's that that connection to that simple – you know, reward or fix, if you will, mm-hmm. right? And some of that battle is is psychological because you know that you can feel better, right? So a, a lot of um, a lot of it, I think, comes you know comes down to probably some inner pain somewhere, whether that's actually physical or whether that's you know inner, and you have some emotional sort of things. And I think that's where um, you know treatment. <laughs> And a recovery process becomes effective because you really start to identify like, okay, hey, what were some of the things or why were some of the things uh, happening or what happened that made you do this? Right. So, you know, for me, let me just, I'll give you, you know, the bright side of the story, right? Yeah. So now that we've gone down the dark path of what that looks like, um, you know, and look. Well, the bright I, side first off is just sitting in front of me. And glad to be here, <laughs> uh, you know, with a smile on my face. And here's the other thing. I think that it's important to realize that. Uh, you know, Scott had made mention in, in the start of the of the broadcast, like, hey, look, if you don't want to talk about certain things, like, you don't have to. I, I'm really not ashamed of my story, Scott. I'm not. I think that because of some of those, you know, maybe darker moments and things that you know a little bit better, yep. I know that, that, that those things could have a tendency to lose part of your audience here, right? I know that those things have a tendency to disqualify certain people you from- You want to something, though, where, where I'm, again- if someone wants to shut it off and says, you know, it's too dark, that's okay. Mm-hmm. But I'm telling you, you're going to change someone's life today. Right. And that's why I want to bring it out. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, I, I think uh, over time I've learned to, you know, to um, to give them more pointed po- points, right? And yeah. I think that, you know, my point is just that um, I, I, I want to I be able to speak to terms that can reach a more broad crowd. And yeah. that's what I'm saying. I'm not so worried about someone turning it off as I am just saying that I don't want someone to hear something and say, well, that wouldn't be him or that wouldn't be her. Right, right. Because it really could be anyone. So yeah. the reason I say say that too is that like, look, so any one of those people that you know, not only, uh, you know, is no one exempt, but let me say this, that no one's exempt from recovery either. So mm-hmm. I've seen the worst types of scenarios you could possibly imagine. I mean, people that you see that there is just, there is, you look at them, there's no shot for that guy. 
and turn it around. I mean, I've seen the worst sorts of scenarios where, you know, uh, crack and heroin addicted mothers, you know, that would live under uh, the L, which is a major train that runs through Philadelphia, yeah. right? And, and lost their kids, lost everything that they've ever had. I completely do a 180, turn the other direction, put in, you know, recovery process in their life, get their kids back, become employable, all these sorts. Of, I mean, people that you would completely write, that as a recovering addict, I almost write off. Right. And I should be the, you know, the guy that would be willing to give the benefit <laughs> of the doubt. So you just really don't know. That's a, but again, that goes back to my, my sticking point as the power of the brain, right? And the power of what self-determination will. Yeah. So, and that's, and that's where I want to, you know, speak to, you know, what worked for me. Right. And, and so it's, I don't have all the answers, Scott. I mean, over, over the years, I've seen different things. I know it's highly debated, highly contested. There's, you know, medication assistant treatment programs and there's all these things. Is that good? Is it effective? Now I can tell you from my experience, I did, uh, I did go to a doctor and I was on a medicated assisted treatment program for some time, particularly when Suboxone first came into the market. So it wasn't very well known. It wasn't, uh, you know, a popular thing. I think, you know, methadones and that sort of labs were, uh, or not labs, but, uh, centers were in place. But I didn't know any better. I'm like, you know what? I just don't want to feel like this. But I felt like, okay, if I don't have to go to certain people or if I don't have to do certain things, at least I'm removing removing myself from that environment. And that yeah. was a step in the right direction. Looking back, I mean, that wasn't really what worked, right? So what worked was getting to a point where I realized first and foremost that without a doubt, the uh, very conditions that I was suffering from were created by my actions. So yeah. that was a that was a first you know, part of it was like looking at things that were happening in my life. I think that every person that's addicted, whether that's alcohol, whether that's drug, you take pills casually, you know, from the junkie snatching purses, uh, you know, to the doctor that's maybe writing himself a couple extra pills every month. The, the thought is, okay, I have these levels of unmanageability in my life. There are certain components of my life that are unmanageable. Now, those things could be unmanageable circumstances outwardly. Maybe you're a doctor and your marriage is falling apart. You know, because you take pain medication and you're taking Percocets a little more frequently than you probably should for right. some pain that you had from years ago mm -hmm. that you're still milking like I told you I did with my back. And your marriage is falling apart because your wife doesn't like your attitude because you're a grump all the time because you're always medicated. Right? So th this is a real mm -hmm. scenario. Now, you could be the person that, you know, you can't, you can't stop smoking crack because you're just addicted to the rush. And, you know, this is what you do day in and day out. At some point, there has to be a realization, okay, my circumstances, whether that junkie that's, you know, that's, you know, and I use that term not to offend anyone, but that's what people say, right? Yeah. So, you know, that, that junkie smoking crack that's, you know, stealing from a, uh, you know, a, a retail store that gets locked up and realizing, oh, you know, well, I got locked up because I got caught or because, you know, there's, there's always some circumstance or set of events, right? Mm -hmm. Some cash, you know, the cashier saw me and that's why. It was, you know, it was never the drugs. Right. When you have that moment of clarity, as most will refer to it in, in, in the community, in the recovery community, what you start to realize is like, well, what if it is the drugs? What if it is the fact that I go and do this repeatedly, right? And that's where the, the veil starts to tear. And that's where it starts to come down. When you, when you first give yourself an opportunity to take a look at that for the first time, you know, really and say, you know, could this be the problem? And so mm -hmm. that's where it started for me. So then, then it's, well, what's the answer? Right. So if you can get to a spot where you're medically stable, whether that's, you know, whether that is through a treatment center, whether that's through a hospital, however those things happen. Right. So if you're on a, a drug that's physically uh, makes you dependent, then the first order of business is, is to stabilize. And I think that the entire medical community would, would agree with that. Okay. So then what's next?
So, so how do they stabilize though? Through medication or usually, reduced medication? Yeah, like, usually like they prescribe to you like a taper tapered system, probably something to treat the anxiety and the and, and the withdrawal symptoms. I mean, mm-hmm. those things, the physical ailments are actually easier to treat, right? Because they're 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 easy to see and assess and go through. It's yeah. more than what is the psychological effects. So what I'm hearing mm-hmm. is even at the the first accountability stage, and that's really what it is, yep. it's accountability. Sure. You need help. You yeah. need to be dependent on someone else, not dependent on the medications or the drugs. Well, and it's a good point, right, Scott? There. Your thinking got you in that mess. How's your thinking going to get you out? Right. You know, so so why the recovery community is effective is because essentially what it is is other recovering addicts that have found the way out, right? And I heard a story uh, one time. They know all the justifications too, Well, they right? know. They know the mindset. They know the self-centeredness. They mm-hmm. know the BS you're going to come up with to try to talk to. And someone outside doesn't know, right? They don't get the mindset. They, it's uh, it's baffling to the outside world. How, well, why does a guy think like that? Or they just don't think you're no good, right? It's just not a good guy. Right, right. But to the recovery community, it's like, oh, it's kind of like a been there, done that. And I remember hearing a story from a guy in, you know, in the inner city of Philadelphia. Because once upon a time when I realized, okay, I want to change my life. What do you do? I said, you know what? I'm going to start going to meetings. So I got inv- involved in, in 12-step meetings. And, and it was by way of suggestion. Now, some of that encouragement came through means I didn't anticipate. But the encouragement came nonetheless. Mm-hmm. And and so I, I go to, you know, these 12-step meetings. And I remember the first time I went to a meeting and someone, you know, raised their hand, said their name, and everybody answered in unison. I, I did like the look around like, oh, my God, this is a cult. I can't, you know, I can't do this. <laughs> how, was, how old were you at that point? I want to say I was, I think, 22, the first time okay. I, you know, I'd gone. And um, I remember thinking to myself, there was a guy who shared his story and he was talking about, you know, uh, some story about getting shot at or something when he was getting drugs. And I remember just thinking to myself, like, I'm never doing that. That's never going to happen. I got nothing in common with this dude. This place is not for me. And, you know, fast forward some timing. And, you know, I continued to go back because I I didn't like the way that I feel. I, not initially. After that moment, I you know, I was bouncing in and out of, of going to meetings. And I was still, you know, using prescribed medication. And I, it was this vicious repetitive cycle mm-hmm. and you know so you find your way so back you're in, on you're off you're on you're off you're on your continuously off, and you find your way back to the doorstep and you yeah. know one of the things we'll say in recovery is like if you if you found your way here it's probably not because you were doing such a great job and like that's the reality i mean you <laughs> could at least identify with that like yeah. i'm not here by accident that, and, I, I think that's applicable in so many other avenues of life right now jobs relationships uh, how many times have you heard of just people just find themselves in continuous like relationships oh. Um, with new people that they meet, yeah. So yeah, so it, it, it it's a behavioral attitude and it, it, it is mindset. And so you know, for me, what I what I believe and what I found is that addiction affects so many different areas of life, right? So like, dr- you know, drug addicts is a little harder to identify with. But mm. what about the guy who gambles his mortgage away? Sure, right. What about that guy? I mean, is he is he a terrible? No, he probably <laughs> in, in most minds in most perspectives, you don't see that guy as the same guy as the one that's stealing from a a, a retail store. So let me ask you, you this know, question. But, People who have an addictive mindset, mm-hmm. are they compulsive mindset at the same time? Yes. Are they, are they two in the same? So I'd say, and this is maybe why I have some doctors smile, I think almost all <laughs> doctors would agree that one of the probably diagnosable components of, of that behavioral uh, you know, uh, component would be probably a compulsive or obsessive component, right? So mm-hmm. that there's some obsession and compulsion. Now, I will, I'll say this. Now in life, that serves me very well, right? Yeah. Because I've put the, some of those tendencies to good use. Well, and, I've told you that. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, you're successful because 
you're obsessive and you're passionate <laughs> about what you do. Yeah. You know, and you, you, you see the, the effect you have on people's lives. Yeah. So, so I, you know, and that's a good segue to say this. I'm actually very fortunate to, and it's, it's odd to say that, right? I'm very fortunate to have gone through the trial, uh, some of the pain and to push through all that and to get to where I am today. Because here's the thing. I, I mean, realistically, I'm not supposed to be here. Statistically, I'm not supposed to be here. You're right? supposed to be six feet under. Six feet under, or yeah. or you know maybe in jail, or 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 you know some institution or something, right? Yeah. I mean, and I think that's what statistically happens. I think that, and, and people always wonder, like, well, you know, and I think often too, what made what made me so special, right? Like, what what why me? And I think really what it was is that when I got into that process, what I realized is like, look, I, I don't know. And, you know, with, with 11 years in recovery and counting, the one thing I know today for sure is I know that I don't know. And that's the only thing I figured out. So let me give a snapshot, but I'm going to go backwards pretty quick with this. Yeah. You are a believer in God. You're a Christian. Yep. You are a practicing Christian with uh, your wife and your kids. Yep. Where were you with God at that point in your life? I, you know, I, I'll give you the I'm old, not saying that yeah. God's the answer because – So to, to back up, I you know, so grade school, I went to – I was in Catholic school for, for eight years. Okay. You know, so I was an altar boy. I, you know, I, I did my Grew good duties. Right? Remember so the ringing the bells? Yeah, I, I rang the bells. <laughs> I, you know, I'd walk the wine to the priest. I, you know, and even thinking back to laugh, I remember eating communion and drinking out of the wine bottle in the right, back right. when I was a kid. So right, I, I, I don't know where these things started. <laughs> I don't know, you know. So, I mean, but, you know, I think that there was always an idea of I understood the concept of God. I, I don't think until the recovery process really happened. And really, that's probably the biggest gift in my life, right, was really understanding that um, a recovery process is, is is geared towards getting you away from that self-centered mindset and bringing mm-hmm. you more to a God-focused mindset. I think what the recovery community does well is probably what society misses on some marks. And, and that's what it does is it breaks down the barriers of entry for a level playing field, right? And, yeah. and really what that is, is, is you know, there's, there's uh, an ability to choose what we, you know, we would say in recovery community, higher power. And with that, it's a softball, right? Because you have different uh, denominations, you have different religions, you have different yeah. cultures. And so what allows someone to do is come in and like, look, we're going to allow you to choose what that looks like, right? Yeah. And once you're comfortable with that, then, then we're going to allow you to, or, or teach Just you like how to- Just like opportunity. We're gonna have, yeah, we're right. gonna teach you how to put some faith in that. So, I remember. So, just kind of fa- fast forward. I, so, I start going to, to to these meetings regularly, and and so what I started to see was that there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of commonalities, and and I would hear things, and I'm like, what were those? So, uh, there there were people would tell stories, and while the stories weren't exactly the same, they were relatable, mm-hmm. right? They were very relatable in the sense that, like, you know, uh, you know, hey, look, I remember being in a situation I didn't want to use, and here I am, I wake up, and I'm asking myself, looking in the mirror, how did you get here again? And I could think to myself, well, I did that. You know, I remember that moment specifically. I remember looking in the mirror, literally with a gut-wrenching, disgusting feeling, looking at myself, like, how did you get here again? I mean, against every odd that I thought – you know, my willpower is going to carry me. I'm not going to do it this time. You know, I'm, I'm dead serious, committed to myself, to everybody around me, wanted to do it, and then failed. And you'd look at yourself just in utter disbelief and utter disgust, how did I get here again? Right? And then here's the worst part. The people around you do the same thing. Yeah. So you really don't even get the encouragement except for, guess where? The people who have been there and understand. You know, so you're up against all odds. You're battling yourself. You're battling most of the rest of the world, right, to try to overcome this hurdle. Your self-esteem was in the gutter. You're crushed. You're crushed. You got nothing. There's nothing in the tank. There's nothing left to give. And, you know, that's 
you know, they, they call that the gift of desperation, mm-hmm. right? So when you really hit that bottom and when I started to really get honest with myself and say, look, I, you know, I'm suffering from the very conditions that I'm causing, right? So now what's the answer? So I started getting involved in the recovery community. And long story short with that, you know, it, it's designed to, again, bring you back to a relationship with God so that you move from the self-centered, you identify some things along the way, you have an opportunity to look at character defects. You know, I, I look, I remember going through, you know, step work and talking to a guy and saying, you know, he says – Look, you need to go to three of your closest friends, and you got to ask them to tell you the three things that they don't like about you the most that you could work on. Wow. I mean, think what about those that. Answers? Who gets? I remember one that bothered me was that I interrupted people when they talked. Probably part <laughs> part of that co- <laughs> like compulsion. I'm doing in, in this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to bring but, some stuff out there. No, that, but you know, it's part of that compulsion. And, yeah. and so, let me just give you an instance there. So, so you know, these are hard things to take feedback. You know, sure. on especially and, at your age too, right? Yeah, Young for, age, for, for any, I mean, really, Scott, at any age, who wants to hear about things that people don't like about them? Well, on a side note, joke, I would say um, a higher majority percentage wise of uh, senior citizens probably don't give a shit, right? Because <laughs> they've done it, they've lived it, uh, and they're and, like, you know, something. I'm I'm out on my way out. Don't care. <laughs> well, how would their life have been if maybe someone told them sooner? And, you know, and so these are these are some True. of the things that that I'm I'm grateful for today, right? So if you think about that, though, so someone says to you, "Hey, you're going through this process, and you're trying to, and it's a continual journey, right? You're trying to, it's about betterment, really. It's not it's not a destination. It's a journey. And the idea was like when I would get feedback like that, while it would bother me, at some point in life, I would have some example of where that would show up, right? So if someone says something, I get excited, compulsively interject. And then would start talking as if what they said didn't matter. And so I started to make some of these connections of like, hey, this is this this behavior just doesn't affect one area of my life. Yeah. And I start to look back. So what happened? Let me tell you about my life. My whole life, I got misinformed information from misinformed people. Where was I gonna go? What was I gonna do? Right. Huh. So 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 one of these things I realized kind of really on, and this was through a process too. I remember there were some oddities in my home, things that my mother, I don't know if she it was her upbringing or what, but I remember that um, at the dinner table, you couldn't drink anything until you were done eating. So you didn't take a sip of your water, your juice, your whatever, whatever you had until you were done eating. And I oh. remember I was out with a bunch of guys, you know, for, after a meeting and we're all out, we're hanging out. And we go out. I mean, at this point, I'm, you know, I'm living my life. I'm enjoying life. I got things back in order. I'm working. I'm, you know, a productive member of society. How old are you? So 25, took me from 22 to 25 to really understand that I, you know, that I needed that process in my life, mm-hmm. right? And so um, I, I'm out with these guys. I'm probably 25, 26. Someone says, hey, man, something wrong with your drink? And I was just like, no, why? So well, you didn't drink anything. You're almost done. And it, it was this like aha moment in my head. And the reason I, I didn't do it was the conditioning. It's what I was brought up with. I was told you don't drink until you're done a meal. Even when I got older and had a choice, I had never done that. Hmm. So I didn't, it wasn't even a thing. The reason I tell you that story is because that was the first time in my life I realized how many more things like that do I have or things that I do that I don't even know. And that's where I really started to try to search these things out. Mm-hmm. So when I tell you I'm really <laughs> fortunate to have had this happen, I am because I got an opportunity to take a look at myself in a way that most don't. Right. So then through that journey, you talked about, you know, good, good Christian man, family, things like that. I've been afforded the opportunity to, to, to go on a mission to try to understand what that looked like 
firstly for me, you know, and I explored a lot of avenues, right? Even though I went through the Catholic thing and did that as a kid, I wasn't entirely convinced that that was my path. Yeah. We've, and, we've debated about that back and forth and had some good discussions about God and, and the Bible and all that. Yeah. And, and, I, and the yeah. denomination specifically. Yeah. And I think that for, for me, what I found was, you know, if God wanted us to know, know exactly what he looked like and who he was. He would have showed us. He would have showed we, he, we yeah. would know by now. Yep. Right. So I think that a big component there is faith. And I think that once I understood that, it was a lot easier for me. And that's where, you know, I found the desire to, 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 to build that relationship through that channel. And, um, you know, I'm grateful that I did. That all said, um, you know, I think that uh, what opened the door for that to even be possible was – you know, some of the systematic things I learned even from going to meetings, you know, they'd say show up early and stay late, right? So I, you know, I'd go to church and show up early and stay late. Yeah. You know, I'd talk to people. I'd tell people kind of where I'm at. And, you know, I think that for the first time in my life, um, you know, or for a long time in my life, I felt like I was able to rely on other people around me. And then I was able to build healthy relationships. So in closing this. Mm-hmm. 22 was the beginning of your journey out. You finished up around the age of 25. You started going to meetings. And how old are you now? 36. Okay. So this is 11 years since right. like you've kind of you finished, if you will. Yep. Still going to meetings? Yep. Okay. You still getting the same thing out of it? Yeah. I think the, the perspective now is different. It's different. Right. right? Because the, the guy's coming in new. I, I'm the guy that's telling them that it works now. Right. So, you know, I, I went from, you know, the guy that was, I don't know if this will work for me, from the guy that's, you know, hold on, young man, you're going to make it. You yeah. know, not that I'm an old man, but, you know, there's kids coming into these meetings. And now, now. You, you probably have more retrospective looking, being like, look, I've been there, I've done that. And you well, can probably feel the emotion too, knowing what they're course. going through, right? Yeah, it's the power of hope, right? I, yeah. I, I mean, look, look at, from what I can under, from what I can see and understand from my perspective, when I, when I went into uh, 12 steps and going into recovery process and, and, you know, made that decision that, Hey, I'm going to really give this a shot. You know, it changed my life. So I can't refute the evidence in front of me that, you know, while that was, you know, simply just, you know, people that were like me that struggle with the problem, you know, what helped me other guys that found a way out. So to get back and I started to allude to this was, there was a story I heard about a guy and he's, you know, he's walking, he's walking down the street and he falls down a hole. You know, he's in the bottom of the hole and he's yelling, he's Hey, Scott, Scott, you know, where, where you at, man? I need help. And the guy comes, he says, hold on, man, I'm going to get a ladder. So Scott comes running back, gives him a ladder, tries sticking it down the hole. The hole's on an angle. The ladder doesn't quite fit. He said, you know what? I said, I'll be back. So he's yelling, he's yelling for another guy. He comes along, he looks down in the hole. He says, hey, Finn, what are you doing down there? Man, I'm stuck. I can't get out. Hold on. Let me go get a rope. I'm going to help you out. And, you know, she throws the rope down. Rope doesn't reach. You know, all hope is lost. And then, you know, another guy comes running along. He says, all right, man, move over a little bit. I see you down there. He jumps down in the hole with him. He says, man, what are you going to do? Now we're both going to be stuck. He said, no, man, I've been in this hole before. I know the way out. So the ladder and the rope are more like the conventional means, things that you think would work, you know, that, that just may not, right? And, yeah. and, and really what I found was helpful was the guy that kind of jumped down in the hole with me said, no, man, don't worry about it. I've been in this hole before. I, I know the way out. So, you know, I know the ladder and the rope looked appealing, but this is the way out. And so, you know, it, it's just an analogy or a picture of kind of what that looks like. It's really hard to explain, right? It's hard to explain how that works, but there's a connection that can be made. Um, you know, and I think that's But emotionally, where- I just connected with that story mm. because I put myself mentally just now in a position that wasn't favorable or something that I thought it was by myself where someone's done the same thing. And immediately I had that connection saying, 
I'm not alone. Right. Yeah, and that and that's actually funny that you say that because one of the slogans in recovery is never alone. Right. Really? Yeah. So I mean, it's funny that you would mention that, and that's that's really the mindset is that you go from a very self, you know, self world, right, yeah. and feeling very alone because part of part of the nature of you know disease of addiction and addiction and what that does to the psyche and to the individual is, is there's isolation. At some point, you find yourself all alone. Yeah. You know, and that's where the the depression and things set in where it's you know woe is me. And, and, you know, it's every other circumstance. I think until you can really take a look at that, and you can say, you know what, it, you know, it, it was you and it was the drug use that, that caused these things. Now, again, there may be other factors, and my story really isn't that, but there may be other things that contribute to that. But at the end, that's what it feels like. It's that feeling of just being alone. And so, you know, having those guys alongside you and saying, look, you know, we know the way out. Just follow me. I got yeah. to a point where I was willing. So, you, you know, 22 to, to 25 is a gap. So really 22, 23 – just kind of trying to figure out if I even like these people. I remember there was a guy that shared in one meeting and I think he had like four teeth in his mouth and he's talking about, <laughs> I, have, I have 25 years clean. And I'm thinking, well, I don't want what that guy's got, you right. know? Because yeah, yeah. I was I was very judgmental. I mean, as great as, as great as I probably looked myself, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I probably look beat up too and here I am judging this guy. Right. But he's managed to get his life in order. He's 25 years, you know, he's sharing hope with guys that need it. There and, was a girl on LinkedIn who I'm friends with the other day she actually made a really, really cool call and post that she put on there. And she gave a quick stat. It didn't say, you know, why they were there. All we know is that 650,000 people annually are released from prison or jail or some kind of incarceration annually. Wow. Those people need to become employable and they're going back into the workforce and don't judge. She then gave an example of how they hired someone who had a past record, and how they're literally the most dependable, have the highest worth ethic, excuse mm-hmm. me, and have exceeded every expectation they've ever set out for their own company. Right. And I'm like, yeah. So listen, I just commend I, that type of yeah, so mentality. I, I think what happens is is you know when when you've been to hell, you appreciate having a little bit more. And so I think you know just just to give you the snapshot. So 24 was my first real effort in recovery. 10 months, I managed to stay no mind mood altering substance. Uh, and wisdom teeth uh, started to come in. And, you know, despite my better judgment, uh, you know, I go to the doc, doc says, listen, you, you know, I tell him doc, listen, I'm in recovery, no narcotics. I don't want any that. So he said, you know, how long did I 10 months? And he says, Oh, you'll be fine. You know, just, just don't, don't abuse them. Mm. So I'm like, well, he's a doctor. He knows what he's talking about. And, you know, unfortunately for me, Scott, I think, uh, you know, maybe some of those uh, reservations I might have had, you know, prior. So it's the it's the line in the sand, right? And, and so, you know, I take the medication. Doc says, here, I'm just going to give you 12. Listen, I took the 12. Guess what? I took them as prescribed. Oh, first time in my life I've ever taken medication as prescribed. You know what I think? This is at 24. This is at 24. So after 10 months in recovery, doing well, life's back in order. I mean, really no turmoil. Things are going really well, right? Mm-hmm. I got this thing come up. I got wisdom teeth really bothering me. They got to come out. Guy says, you're crazy. You, you can't do this without taking pain medication. Now yeah. I talked to guys in recovery. They all told me not to do it except for like maybe one guy. Look, you're not a martyr. There's certain instances where maybe you have to do that. Of course, I listened to the one guy, not the masses. But then, you know, the doctor says the same thing. I kind of confirmed. Oh, okay, good. Well, long story short, you know, that was the first time I had taken 
medication is prescribed. Yeah. I got that feeling again. And you know, I convinced myself, oh, you know what? This thing, this thing worked. <laughs> 10 months. Now I'm taking medication as I'm supposed to. Maybe I'm back to normal. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe I'm normal now. Maybe I never really had a problem. I just had like a stage in life. You know, and and and, and I these keep things. going back to your brain, man, and and the roller coaster you're putting yourself through. That's, that's I mean, I, I'm glad it's painting that picture because that's what it feels like. Yeah, right. So now, hey, I'm good again. Like all your justifications, your mindsets, and going back to justifications, and well, is it really this? Is it really that? And the games that you are playing with yourself at yeah. this point. It's it's almost like your first love. Right. Right, it's like the it's like the girl you know is no good for you, but you keep going back, or maybe the the guy that you yeah. know is if it's a female, you know that they just keep going back, and it's just like I don't know why. Right, and and so you know I say that because um, you know kind of cool story. So that was September thirteenth, two thousand seven. Um, Funny that you know the exact. Date. Well, it was the first that was that was the first time I you know really started my journey of recovery, and so uh, September that went on for ten months uh, in recovery. I start. So now I convinced myself, hey, look, I don't have a problem anymore. Great. So now I'm just going to take them once in a while. That didn't last very long. I mean, within a span of like 45 days, you know, that started to escalate. I started finding myself talking to people again. And, you know, now I have to I have to acquire this. I don't have a doctor writing a prescription for this stuff. So now I have to go back to the sort of old means and methods. Of, of, and how old are you at this point? So now I would have been 24. Okay. Right. So, you know, it, I'm trying it's, to give a chronological order of your age here. As we thank go along. you. Thank you. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, I would say for me internally, it really felt like holding a million dollars and giving it back and saying, you know what? I don't want this. You can have it. And, and that's the best way I could put it into layman's terms for somebody who just doesn't understand the thought process of what's going on. It literally feels like holding a million dollars when your life gets back in order and yeah. then you go back to that. So, I remember some, you know, again, some moments of clarity. Where I'm saying to myself, I can't do this. So I'm two months after the I had ten months period, two months I'm still doing this, and my wife says, "Listen, you know, my father-in-law now has a timeshare. We're going to go away." And I said, "You know what? That's it. I'm going to go. I'm essentially going to detoxify myself. I really knew from going through this a few times what it would take. I'll taper myself down, and I'm not doing it. I'm going to start going back to these meetings." Yeah. So I brought enough stuff that I thought would last for the week. By Tuesday, Wednesday, you know, it's almost entirely gone. I'm starting to scramble thinking, oh, my God, how am I going to make this work? And, you know, I remember making the decision, like, you know what, this is it, right, at night. And um, and, and I only had, like, the little, this little bit of what I brought with me left. I remember taking that, and I'm thinking, I'm going to go through it. It just is what it is, right? And I remember that morning at 5 a.m., um, I was, you know, kind of tossing and turning. Some of the symptoms start setting in, and I'm, you know, going from the couch to the floor to the bed to the couch to the bed, trying to get comfortable because you know, you're just jumping out of your skin. Yeah. And my wife's phone goes off. Back then, they still had clam phones, like the yeah, flip yeah, phones. Yeah, the phones. And yeah. so my father-in-law is an avid fisherman. He loves to fish. Terrible fisherman, but swears he's good. <laughs> uh, but you know, he's always good for a five a.m. call for fishing. And so we're in North Carolina, we're in the Outer Banks, and so I swear that's him calling her phone to say, "Hey, let's go fishing." And I opened the phone, and my wife had pro programmed in one year anniversary would have been for you know for for sobriety, clean time, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And I don't know what it was, Scott, but in that moment, I remember it just felt like you know like a dagger piercing my heart. You know, like it really was a realization of everything that I had potentially given back, that million dollars that I was holding in my hand mm -hmm. and said, you know what, this is no good. And I remember saying to myself in that moment, Finn's one day, right? And I knew that I had 10 months in me. 
because I'd already done that, right? So I said, you know, dude, you, you know you have 10 months. You have to give this another go. So the irony there is that I actually, you know, got clean again on the same day that I did the year before. So it went from September 13, 2007 to September 13, 2008. So I knew that I had this 10 months in me. But I also knew that, like, I had to have missed something. And, and what I missed was the idea that I could – essentially use any drug successfully, whether that was, you know, any drug, any minor mood-altering substance successfully. So everything I learned through that recovery process became evidently clear, Yeah, you know, by, by what, what had happened. So now let's get into the good part. What does recovery afford to me? What does that afford to me? And I, I didn't even really mean for this to be a whole you no, know, thing, it, thing on recovery, but I well, think Well, the other that, thing is, too, is like we'll probably just break it into two parts. Yeah. We'll give everyone the, the write-up and we'll just cruise down. So yeah. let me let me segue into this, yeah. Okay, because again, um, I am not not just proud of you. I envy you and what you did. Okay, thank you. I've never been there. I don't want to be there. One last question before we go. Mm-hmm. You just explained as I'm listening through this, a complete roller coaster ride. Mental justifications, mental heartache. It really was mental heartache because you're you're either justifying or you're you're abusing. It's one or the other. You've been sober for you know over ten years. You've had to have had moments of weakness. How did you do it? What was where was the willpower? Where was your inspiration moments? What were the things that said I am not? It's just not happening. Yeah. So let me give you. I did talk a lot about kind of how I got there and some of the things I did, but I didn't really. And I, I would imagine probably people want to hear a little more about this. So yeah. Because that's the mental callus. Yeah, let me let me tell you what works. So let me tell you what works. There's difference. There's differences of opinion here, but I can tell you empirically what I've seen over time that works. Right. Mm -hmm. I I think that what I've seen that works is is you know treatment treatment works. Right. I've seen you know multitudes of people that have gone into treatment. Now you know treatment starts from a level of inpatient detox and works its way all the way down to outpatient, which could be individual or group counseling sessions where you're checking in maybe one day a week or that sort of thing. It works, right? Um, but there isn't a one-size-fits-all for recovery, right? There's different varying degrees of sickness and different rates of recovery. So everyone's bo- bottoms are different. Everyone's conditions are different. I think that's what makes it somewhat challenging for doctors. And I think the other challenging hmm. factor, and it's not to disqualify the intellect of a doctor, it's just that a lot of these things are are, are baffling. So that value of that peer-to-peer understanding or that peer-to-peer uh, – Let me tell you three things about doctors that I've learned so far on this podcast. Mm-hmm. They have absolutely little to no training in education of nutrition unless they pursue it on their own after they receive their degrees. They have little to no education in running a successful business practice mm-hmm. because there's nothing taught in med school. And they have little to no education on pharmaceuticals their long-term effects, how it affects the genome and the biome in the gut, which is the center of everything in our body, which we now know for a fact, those three factors alone, they don't know. All they know is what they're educated on. Yep. Yeah, and I think that to expound on that point, I think that I can only speak to what I've seen, right? Yeah. So I can only speak to, to what I've seen. And, and you know, we, you may have some some doctors and some, you know, medical professionals that have seen other tracks and other things work. But what I can tell you is that I've, I've, I've seen many different forms, right? I, I know that treatment, there's a formatted process for how that works. There's, there's a set format of how long someone's in treatment, where they are, and how long it is. Now, here's the variable there. Treatment centers differ. 
treatment centers differ significantly, mm. right? And the professionals that you're talking about that maybe have little or no, you know, uh, experience when it comes to certain aspects, there's varying degrees then of what that process even looks like. So there's no unilateral solution there that that's just kind of a one size fits all. Now right. you also have in that field, a lot of times you have treatment professionals or, or maybe even doctors or clinicians that have uh, suffered through similar uh, addictions and things like that. And I think what I've seen more long-term that they're usually the most impactful, right? Because I think there's a certain level of relatability that sometimes can be missed. I'm not saying all the time. I think that there's some pretty sharp and, and uh, astute uh, medical professionals outside of just, you know, qualifying yourself too, by, by having gone through addiction, right? Right. But I would say too, like the doctors that would be involved in treatment, I mean, they would know and probably have done the due diligence, the research. I'm talking about the general practitioner they're not going to have done all that research no. because it's too much for them to know. Well, at that and point. it's another lax area in this department, right? So, to the fact that you say that, like a lot of doctors, and probably now it's getting better, but I think a lot of doctors, are like, well, where do we send those? You know, where do yeah. we send these people? Yeah. Where do they go? Mm-hmm. What do they do? What works? What doesn't work? And so, listen, minimally, what someone can do and it doesn't cost them a dime is they can go to a twelve-step program, right? Now, I would say for you know the audience that maybe doesn't know or the people that that don't know, where would you send them? Well, whatever they're they're leaning towards using, right? So Narcotics Anonymous would would gear up for really any drugs and covers, you know, all of it. So any type of addiction, everyone's welcome there. Alcoholics Anonymous is more geared towards alcohol. Even though they address the same underlying issues, there's really no difference, right? In the Mm -hmm. patterns of behavior, the thoughts and everything that happens. And really essentially that uh, solution by way of the 12 steps is very much the same. But there's a certain... um, identification uh, factor that comes into play there that doctors may not consider, right? But for someone who just drinks all the time, they may not want to hang out in a room where guys are talking about how they were, you know, shooting heroin or, or, or yeah. doing cocaine. So it, for them, there may be a hard, like I talked about some of those stories. I said, when I heard that guy telling the story about getting shot at, so I'm like, yeah. what? It's unrelatable. <laughs> yeah. Like what? How yeah. am I anything like this guy? And then, that's kind of funny because earlier in the conversation, you were talking about how, I'm not crossing the line in the sand. Some people are like, I'm just not, if I go, I'm going to die. Right. But you are willing to do it. But you're probably thinking of that guy who's having a, a gunshot at him is, why were you in a position to get a, someone shooting at you? <laughs> right. Right. Well, and, and that's, you know, these are some of the laughable points, right? Because everybody's bottom's different. Like, yeah. okay, uh, uh, okay, so my line was here. Well, that well, that guy's line was here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, the, the thoughts to get there were, were very much the same. Yeah. He just was willing to push it. He went a little bit deeper into the ocean, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So I waded up to my shoulders and I was like, well, that's he far enough. He was swimming enough. with the sharks. He was swimming out there. He didn't care, right? Yeah. He didn't, you know, he was just waiting for the for the tiger shark to pick him off. And, and that's really, I mean, the simplest way that I can explain that. However, so when you find, you know, that, that okay, what's the solution? These things work. They're effective, right? So recovery is a very effective thing. I mean, it's evident in my life. And that's why, yeah. you know, I really do want to transition and share the hope. But there's definitely going to be listeners here like, hey, you told, told us a lot about your story. What did you do to to, to turn that around? How did I, you do I, that? I really do. And, and don't, I mean, tell us, but don't forget about like what your, what worked for you. Yeah. Because- they're going to stay and listen to your story, but they're going to continue to stay and listen because how you did it. Right. And I'm waiting for it. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like yeah. how did you do it? Like, yeah, sir. What, what does it look like in your head? Like, make me feel that emotion. 
Yeah, so I, you know, look, the the gift of desperation we touched on uh, mm-hmm. was definitely in full effect, especially after having that ten month time period where my life was was you know in order. You know, it took ten months to shift things around. Family starts looking at you a little differently. People around you start looking at you a little differently. Like, yeah. oh, maybe maybe he's gonna do it. You know, yeah. and and to give that all back was a terrible feeling. But then to realize here was the hope. You know what? That guy that was in the hole with me that said, "Remember, I know the way out." Well, I remember that guy was still around. I knew where to find that guy. You know, and that guy was the recovery. That was the meetings. Like, I couldn't deny that, hey, look, when I did this, here's 10 months of my life. It was really good. When I did what I've always done, I felt exactly how I felt for the longest time in my life, and that was really bad. <laughs> so it gets hard to deny yeah. so many things. Now, how do you do that? Well, the consistency, right? You have to show up. First and foremost, you know, they say there, like, put your butt in the seat and your brain will follow. Right. And that's really what happened, right? I had all these thoughts, man, this is like a cult. I don't, you know, I don't know. I'm not like this guy. I'm not like that guy. And here's what I started to do. I started to hear these small similarities in stories. So somebody would say something, I'd be like, you know, I'd kind of perk up like, oh, I can relate to that. Or somebody would share something a little more honestly than I would be able to, you know, maybe about some pain that they felt inside Mm -hmm. or how they felt maybe, you know, they were feared up about a certain situation or they felt less than in a certain situation. And look, I might've felt those things, but I didn't have the level of honesty that that person did to then communicate that out to a group. And I remember, you know, there's a few Mm -hmm. times where outwardly I might've been sitting there like, oh man, I can't believe that guy's talking about that, you know, with a smug look. In my heart feeling like, man, I can't believe that guy's talking about that, right? I can't believe that guy's willing to get that honest about his situation to try to get better. You know, and so there's different levels of, of, of things that happen through that step process where the first step, you know, look, you're just admitting that you have a problem. For most people that find your way into recovery, it's pretty easy to see. Yeah. You know, like we started to talk about, there's outward unmanageability. Look, if you're going to jail, okay, you find yourself in a treatment center. Okay, you find yourself in a mental institution, or you just simply find that the people around you are having an extremely difficult time with you. It may be time to look at that, right? Because there's some early and easy signs. But to again, see that, that's well, from someone from the outside, not from their perspective. Well, right? But no, but but it's I'm getting to it. So the outward unmanageability—that's the most easy signs to see. Mm-hmm. But what's harder to, to to really assess from from your perspective is the inner unmanageability. That's the inner turmoil. Those are the conflicts that happen within, right? Mm-hmm. Some of those obsessive – so physically or, or you know, mentally obsessing about the thoughts of, of, of using, right? Yeah. Then physically compulsively acting on that decision. Mm-hmm. Mentally obsessed, physically compulsed, yeah. and, then, and, and then, you know, spiritually completely disconnected. You know, so you asked, you know, what was your relationship with God like? I didn't have one. You don't feel worthy. You don't feel worthy of the guy next to you, let alone a God that can control the world. So think about that thought. Let that set yeah. in. So how do you start to build and mend those bridges with the other people that have been in the hole? So once you you know you understand that there's a problem, well then then you understand that you have to identify with the solution. You know, and so the, you progress through those through those steps, and they're in, in order to really dig out the dirt, hmm. take out the trash, and start to clean up the house, or or maybe build a new one. You know, and and so that's really what happens is through those. So did you knock yourself down? What do you mean? Well, you said maybe build a new house. Did you knock your did you knock your house down and then rebuild it? Listen, the house I had wasn't a great one. Yeah, right. No, I'm, so, I'm talking about yeah the one you built on. Yeah, I think it's it, 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 in a lot of ways it's a tear down to really realize. Look, you got to be willing to be honest with yourself. Yeah, was I making good choices? No. You know, was I were, were the things that happened a result of that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Did people around me approve? No. Did I have the love and support of my family? Maybe. Right. I think mm-hmm. at the end of the day, they loved me. But I, you know, I was doing some things. But they that, may not want to have to deal with who, you. Who, right? Who yeah. wants to deal with it? 
And I think that's a struggle for a lot of parents. I mean, it's it's usually there's polarities there, right? Mm-hmm. And and we'll get into like, you know, the recovery house and how I started all that and where that went. But so, you know, th- I would deal with different parents in that. And, and you know, fast forward, I'm involved in recovery. So let's just go there, right? Let's get to it. Yeah. So fast forward, I get revo- involved in the recovery process. And listen, my life changes dramatically, right? So, you know, I, I now can become part of the vision of hope that was displayed to me, an example of like, hey, look, lost dreams uh, awaken and new hopes arise. So I start to see things with a new horizon, right? I'm not capped to the once, you know, grim future that I believed in my head would exist. Like this is always going to be right. I don't see a way out and you're not trapped in that hole any longer. So now it's like, Hey, I'm out of the hole. There's a whole new world out here. Let's figure this out. Like you'd mentioned earlier, look, I, some of the best guys I know, the most motivated guys I know, and some of the guys that are the most savvy and willing to go get it are guys that have been there. Hmm. I mean, when you've been down in that ditch and you feel like there's no tomorrow, you live your life like there's no tomorrow. If you can turn that off and turn it into a positive thing where now you realize there is a tomorrow, not only do you have tomorrow, but you have the day after that and the day after that. Well, with motivation. Like, with motivation. Because yeah. you're motivated. Because look, one, you're not supposed to be there. Two, now you're like, okay, well, now I can do anything. Now, before you couldn't do anything. Yeah. Now you can do anything and everything that you want. Why? Because you found the way out. Right? And, and so that for me was a lot of the motivation. I started to get this newfound re- revive, uh, you know, revival of spirit, if you will, right? Where I felt this new life and I felt like, man, I, I got a real gift here. This is not an opportunity that I'm going to waste. You know, what can I do as an individual to have an impact? You know, and just it, not only in the, in the recovery community, how can I help others? I wanted to take a minute to thank everyone for joining us today on Healthcare 360. It was my honor to have on the show my friend, Mr. Vinny Resnick to talk about his personal life story and how he flipped the script on what seemed to be a dire situation, how he overcame his personal obstacles, and later thrived building a grassroots company, Nexus Billing Solutions. If you like Healthcare 360 and enjoy the conversation, please share this podcast and give us a review. And if you haven't already done so, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you enjoy listening. If you want the conversation to continue, you can find us on Twitter, at hc360podcast or healthcare360podcast.com. Thanks again. This is Scott Burgess with Healthcare360. See you next time.